Good afternoon and welcome to the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy's live weekly broadcast. I'm Roberta Oster, the Communications Director. Our program brings you news and policy information about economic, racial, social, and environmental justice issues here in Virginia. You will hear the perspective and expertise from legislators, community members, policy experts, and faith leaders. And we want you to be engaged. Please ask questions while we are live on our broadcast on Facebook. The program will also share resources for communities and congregations and offer opportunities for you to get involved in our work advancing social justice and helping our neighbors. Now to today's broadcast. I am thrilled to bring this to you. We are going to talk about water, something that everyone needs for life, but not everyone has access to. We will discuss the complex issues of access and affordability. And I'm pleased to introduce our guests who are experts in this area. Delegate LaCherise Aird, who is a Democrat from Virginia's 63rd district, Welcome and thank you for being here. And Jamshid Bakhtiari, who is a community organizer with the Virginia Poverty Law Center. Welcome to both of you. And our moderator is Reverend Dr. Faith Harris. Faith is my colleague and friend, and she is the interim co-director of Virginia Interfaith Power and Light. Faith? Good morning. Um, I am so happy to be here today with Delegate Aird and also my friend Jamshid. Um, and I just want to open our conversation about water with a few facts. Um, within the past hundred years, water use has been growing at more than twice the rate of human population. Um, as water supplies continue to shrink, some parts of the world are facing a looming crisis. Um, today, one in nine lack access to safe water. Countries that are home to one-fourth of the Earth's population face an increasing urgent risk, the prospect of actually running out of water. In developing countries, women are dis disproportionately affected by the water crisis as they are often responsible for collecting water. And the lack of water and sanitation locks women into a cycle of poverty. Much of the United States could be uh, gripped by a significant water shortage in just five decades time, according to predictions made in a new study uh, on the, in the online journal, uh, Science Alert. From the year 2071 on, scientists say, the combined effects of climate change and population increases are projected to present serious challenges to close to half of the 204 watersheds covering the contiguous United States. The water crisis is a health crisis. Nearly 1 million people die each year from water, sanitation, and hygiene-related diseases, which could be reduced with access to safe water or sanitation. Uh, we all remember the Flint water crisis, which is not yet uh, fully resolved, uh, is one example of how things can go terribly wrong when a city seeks to balance their budget. Um, some 9,000 children who are particularly sensitive to lead and its effects were exposed uh, to contaminated water in that situation. 
And as we face COVID-19 pandemic, now more than ever, access to safe, affordable water is critical to the health of families around the world and here in the United States. Um, and so today our guest, our conversation is about access to affordable uh, water in Virginia. Uh, we know that access to portable water is an increasing problem for communities. So in general, what should Virginians understand about water in our state? Um, and I will ask this question of Delegate Aird first, and, uh, and then uh, Jamshid, if you want to uh, respond as well. Delegate Aird. Yes, good afternoon, and thank you so much for inviting me to participate today. Um, I want to first answer your question by offering a bit of context of how I arrive at this conversation, uh, especially on the topic of water. Um, you know, I think being able to add the context on the lens in which I see this issue will help individuals understand some of what we'll talk about later around proposed solutions and recommendations for community action. Um, so first, I think my first introduction to water as a human right came long before I even knew the concept of water, of what water as a human right meant. And that was because of my own experience with, you know, two very hardworking parents that fell on hard times and found themselves having their water utility disconnected and sort of all of the emotion uh, and hardship that comes with that experience. I think the second context in which I come to this issue is having dealt with individuals in the community that I represent experiencing a difficult um, difficulty with accessing water uh, compounded by it taking place during a pandemic and seeing firsthand sort of punitive policies that were weaponized against them uh, especially people who are largely financially disadvantaged. And then lastly, I will say, I arrive at this issue on water being sort of a human rights issue uh, and being a human right by realizing that it's not just my district. Uh, it's not just urban, it's not just rural or suburban. When you look across Virginia, there are all types of communities that are experiencing um, this limited access to water and or having difficulties affording their access to water. Uh, and this is going to follow us long after this pandemic is declared over. So to your question, yes, I believe that water is a human right. And I believe we need to renew uh, and amplify this concept uh, from a policy standpoint, from a local government standpoint, standpoint and a public-private partnership standpoint. Um, as you have stated in your opening comments, the access to water is intrinsically linked to your human right to have adequate housing, to be able to prepare your food, to have necessary um, the necessary resource for sanitization and cleansing, uh, particularly if you are a household that has young children and a family as a whole. Um, and so the one thing that I found interesting as I become, as I've become more um, intimate with this issue of water as a human right is that many everyday people consider uh, this concept a global or international one, but mm -hmm. 
but in just the immediate examples that you have provided. And as we look across Virginia uh, with current and past examples in Hopewell, uh, what we're seeing in Lynchburg, uh, this issue of water as a human right is one that's domestically right here in our backyard. And we need to really begin to have the conversation in a very renewed way. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate the fact that we are now in a place where because so many people are impacted, we can begin to look at this as a policy measure through a different set of lenses, one that's happening to us and not just an international and or global phenomenon. Thank you, Jamshed. Now, your response. Yeah. As water is human right in your understanding. Uh, yeah, so thanks again for having me on the show. I think Delegate Aird articulated her position beautifully, and I share all of those sentiments. I became aware of water as a human rights issue actually before I even joined up at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. I have a master's degree in international law and human rights that I acquired from at United Nations University. And in fact, on July 28th of 2010, the United Nations passed a, a resolution um, through the General Assembly that explicitly articulated water as a human right for all people. When we think about this, it's pretty obvious. What do you need to sustain life? Um, we need air, we need water, we need food, we need shelter. If you want to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this is things at the very bottom. So um, unequivocally, water is a human right that's been uh, recognized internationally, not just in our country, but at the United Nations, the world's premier forum to discuss human rights. And um, approaching the issue from the Virginia Poverty Law Center, we look at this as a consumer issue, uh, especially in a pandemic when the economy is impacting people in such a harsh way. A lot of people are facing these tough decisions. Like, am I going to pay rent? Am I going to pay my water bill? Am I going to pay my electricity bill? Am I going to pay for medication? Am I going to pay for food to put food on the table? And what, when families are confronting these issues, it only magnifies how important these issues are. Thank you. Um, uh, so water, um, we understand as a human right, just in the same way that we need to be able to breathe air. Uh, and so um, I ask now to go to the question uh, related to uh, Virginia specifically, um, how and what legislation is currently uh, on our books uh, and our policy um, that um, impact access to water for Virginians? Um, what do citizens in Virginia need to know about? Um, the laws that currently guide and um, direct how water is either affordable or accessible to citizens. Delegate Thank Mayor? you so much for that question. Um, I, I want to first say that I think it's important for us to talk about the concept of water as a human right from a political standpoint in the context of the United States first, which as Jamshit could probably shed more light on coming from um, just with his expertise, the United States has not been one to embrace this concept uh, legally, um, this idea that water is a human right. Now we've had various acknowledgements but nothing formally that embraces it fully as necessary. And I think when we look contextually at states that have been able to successfully do this, which California comes to mind, it was literally a battle tooth and nail to try and get that acknowledgement on the books formally within um, their state. And even with that formal acknowledgement, 
uh, we've seen to date that it lacks sort of the enforcement um, and mechanics there to really make sure that the law is being adhered to as it was intended. So in Virginia, I think when I first tried to look into the laws that were available for our immediate crises, I had to first understand the difference between water that's being governed from a private utility standpoint versus a water authority, um, which has a lot to do with the decision-making of what your uh, locality is empowered to do. And when you are in a pandemic like we are in right now, do you have to adhere to the SEC and the moratorium that was in place? Uh, just all of those things. And so in Virginia, we have both systems being operated. You have uh, private operation. You also have these water authorities. Um, I think as we begin to look at whether one is better than the other, uh, I don't know that that's the conversation for this setting, but I think in whatever we do moving forward, we need to make sure that our policies are aligned in such a way that if we are declared to be sort of in a state of emergency, that moratoriums and policies that are put in place apply to both systems uh, and not just one or the other. And so I think when I talk to many people about some of the structures and systems here in the Commonwealth, I start with making that point first. Those are very important points and thank you for that. Um, and Jamsud, do you want to add to that or do you have any um, a different take on that same sub, um, con uh, question? I think the delegate articulated that again perfectly. I'm in full agreement with her. Uh, I, just for clarification from some of the audience, the delegate mentioned the SEC, the State Corporation Commission, which has jurisdiction over private companies. So they put out a moratorium at the beginning of the state of emergency in relation to the pandemic on utility shutoffs. So because Dominion, for instance, is a private company, Dominion for a duration of time is not able to turn off your power for not non-payment. However, in some localities, these utilities such as water are run publicly and the SEC has no jurisdiction over there. So I just wanna clear that up for some of the audience members, but otherwise, whatever we do moving forward, we need to make sure that whenever we're in a state that we're in now, whatever decisions we make apply to both systems, whether it's publicly run or privately run, at the end of the day, people need these, uh, need these necessities. Delegate Aird um, uh, raised the issue of how difficult it was in California to get hum uh, water as a human right uh, accepted as a, you know, as a statewide uh, policy, right? So what do you think would be the narrative? What is the way that we need to approach that same um, topic, right? How do we get people to understand and embrace water as a human right in the same way that they just probably think already of air or access to to breathing fresh air how do we what are the things that we need to do what are the components who are the people that we need to talk to to make that happen yeah i don't know if you want to jump in first i feel like i'm dominating here a little bit but i i, I want to just first say that i think it starts with uh number one changing the hearts and minds of people a lot of time when you talk about this issue of water access and affordability many people who are financially disadvantaged they are looked down upon uh many of the attitudes towards those individuals are well they just chose not to pay their bills they just chose not to pay 
uh, for their water and now they're looking for a handout when in reality, that's just not true. Uh, when you look at many communities uh, where you have a concentration of impoverished um, folks, you see that there is a long history of uh, economic fragility, whether that be a major industry leaving uh, and laying the foundation for high unemployment levels, whether you have high uh, sort of uh, health disparities, uh, just any number of things, most of these people are one or two paychecks away anyway from being in a difficult situation. And when they do fall on that hard situation and you make you have to make the tough decisions like described earlier, do I choose my rent? Do I choose food? Do I choose my lights? Uh, water is another one of those issues that they are having to choose between. And what we found in communities like ours is that our policies allow for those individuals to end up in a hole so deep that it was near impossible for them to climb out of. And so what they had to do in California, number one, is it took multiple attempts. It wasn't accomplished in just one year because even when it did pass, their governor vetoed it. So the political environment wasn't best suited. Uh, and then when they had to attempt it again, it took both domestic and international uh, uh, activism, if you will, uh, to try and really help everyday citizens understand why human, why uh, water is a human, right, human rights issue and to change attitudes enough that would encourage everyday people that were not possibly experiencing this hardship to push their representatives, to push their leaders, to push their neighbors, to come together to also fight for this issue collectively. And so from an activism standpoint, which is a, a, an entirely different part of the conversation, I think you have to have that, but it has to start with the hearts and minds of folks in the community. And Samson, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback off of that, um, I think to your point, Faith, of getting people to recognize water as a human right, like air. I think that hard work is already done. I've been working on the water shutoff issue for about three months now. And every time I bring this up with folks that aren't even in the social change field or the progressive policy space, we're all shocked when they found out that people did not have water in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, so I think a lot of that work is already done. I think the challenges are going to come from the special interest groups that are going to try to stop something like this from happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a delegate, articulated beautifully, that's just going to take organizing power and people power to overcome. I'm sure all the listeners of this show are very well familiar with Margaret Mead's fav uh, famous quote. That's kind of cliche at this point, but never doubt that a small dedicated group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. This is one of those instances. This is your chance to change the world and get with a small group of people. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, you can go to vplc.org. That's vplc as in Virginia Poverty Law Center.org slash water. And we'll keep you in on how to get together with a small group of people and change the world. So we have a question from a um, from uh, someone watching, uh, and their question is, how do we keep the pressure and attention on this issue, uh, particularly after the immediate urgency of this pandemic? So once this pandemic is over, if it's ever over, um, what are what are the things that uh, ordinary citizens uh, people of faith, uh, this uh, this show reaches numbers of people around the state 
who are people of faith, they're part of some kind of faith community, they care about this issue um, for moral reasons, because of their values, because they care about their neighbors. So what is it that we can do to keep this um, this a, an important priority for Virginians and for people, and not just for our citizens, but also for our legislators? So uh, I'm gonna take this one if you don't mind, Delegate. I, I think the most important thing you can do is develop a relationship with an organization that is working on this issue every single day. We can't expect everyday people to work on this all the time. Of course, we all have a lot of priorities. We need to put food on the table. We need to take care of our family. Um, but if you are keyed in with an organization that's working on this issue, whether it be the Interfaith Interfaith Policy, the Virginia Poverty Law Center, um, the Sierra Club, any other group that's working on this, and get on their uh, email list. Uh, that's the way to stay informed, number one. And number two, to take the step after that to becoming an active volunteer with that group. And that could mean writing letters to the editor from your house. That could be making phone calls to folks. It could be meeting di digitally with your legislator to talk about why this issue is important. So that, I think that's the most important thing we can do is develop relationships with networks and groups that are already working on this and making it a priority. And the only thing I will add to that is I think removing the stigma of not being able to afford your water or not having access to water is equally important. One of the most difficult stages of trying to get support for some of the folks in this community that were experiencing hardship was getting them to feel comfortable enough to tell their story, to talk about their experience, to proving that we are actually out here. Uh, we're not just sort of a made up figment of someone's ma imagination that there are people living under these conditions. And it's a very difficult thing to ask of someone. But what I've learned as a legislator more than anything is that when you can put sort of a face to an issue, it personalizes it. It makes it more than just words on a paper. It makes it more than just a data point or statistic but people are not going to come out and share those really difficult personal experiences if they feel like they're gonna be judged or that there's a stigma attached to it. And so as a society, if we can begin to embrace people and you know, offer them the support that they need to make it through a difficult situation, especially like not having access to water, I think that's gonna come a long way from an organizing and activism standpoint when we try and actually push through policy. And before we move on, I, I want to add to that a little bit, because I think it's an important point that you raised, Delegate, but we need to eliminate the taboo of shame that is associated with these types of things. I've spoken with a number of members in the Petersburg community, for instance, that have been without water throughout this crisis. And there was one woman I talked to that went this entire winter without water. She went from December until April without water. And in order to use the restroom, she had to go to a business down the street. She had to walk every time she had to go to the bathroom to a business down the street. And if the business was closed, she had to wait till the next day. If she wanted to use a shower, she stayed with friends. And what she told me was that she was so embarrassed by her circumstances, she didn't even tell her friends why she was staying over so much. So really eliminating those barriers and taboos and allowing people to speak this truth is paramount, paramount in my opinion. Um, and I did mention a hotline uh, earlier, I, I believe the Virginia Environmental Justice Collaborative initiated a hotline for residents in Virginia that do not have access to water or at risk of having their water shut off the call. If you are one of these people or you know someone that might be in the circumstance, uh, you can call that number today. That number is 804 313 
804-313-9363. Once again, that phone number is 804-313-9363. So I, we have another question from one of our listeners, uh, viewers. Um, and the question is, where does the um, resistance to affordable water come from at, for people having access to uh, affordable water? Where is it coming from, in your opinion? Well, I'll just take a brief shot at this question. First, I want to start out by saying there are two different conversations we're having. One is sort of futuristic in that we want to push for more in the Commonwealth. We want to have sort of these acknowledgments on record that clearly state we believe as a Commonwealth that you have a human right to water. And I promise you, when we begin to have that conversation, you will begin to see some of these private entities that are sort of concerned about their bottom line and what that means to them, uh, raise different types of questions and you know have concern for um, a legal presence of this acknowledgement. And so I think that's one conversation and we're not quite there yet, but the record of other states making this push reflect that opposition. And then you just have a lack of understanding. Uh, everyone's communities may not be experiencing this. They may not have observed this firsthand. And so from the perspective of representatives seeing the value of having such an acknowledgement legally present, there just may be a gap in understanding. Um, but then let's talk about your local government, right? So you have local leaders that literally are putting in place punitive policies in communities of socially and econ economically disadvantaged folks. And, and so it's not necessarily them saying, um, well, we don't believe you should have water, but that is saying reconnecting your water, even if it was reconnect, if, even if it was disconnected prior to a pandemic, uh, to do so is socialist, right? So like you have tactics that are being used by local government that if you are not putting in policies that are deliberate about supporting um, families and households that you know don't have access, then to me, that is opposition. Uh, we should not have to demand you take steps, the necessary steps and the necessary actions um, that lead from a place of care and concern. And so when you don't do those things, I consider you being against believing in that access to water as a human right and we have a responsibility that as we begin to explore this concept further, we need to look at all the local governments and make sure that it's not just during a pandemic when you're doing the right thing, but just generally you have policies in place that when someone does not have access, when someone cannot afford, uh, you have measures that can be a resource to get them back on their feet as it pertains to their water utility. And I don't know how much y'all want to get into this, but I mean, also, once resources are available to turn the water back on, do that with as much haste as possible and don't create additional arbitrary barriers to that. I spoke with one woman that called into the hotline who has been without water for a year, being without water for a year. And Delegate Aired was very gracious, got money for everyone in the Petersburg community to get their water reconnected. It's been sitting somewhere. And when she reached out to get those funds accessed, the city put up barrier after barrier so she couldn't get her water turned back on, even though the money's there and it's earmarked and it's ready to go. So if the resources are there and the moral 
urgency is there, don't create additional barriers arbitrarily. Just look at this as a pure human issue, especially during a pandemic. Well, I think that that speaks to why it's so important for us to move toward a, a normalization of uh, water policy across the state, as well as, um, you know, bringing human water as a human rights to the forefront and making it a priority for uh, for the state of Virginia. Um, and, you know, hopefully Virginia has been uh, leading on a number of important issues related to, uh, you know, caring for and uh, valuing the rights of, uh, of its citizens. And we can continue to be a leader in the United States. So uh, we're hoping to see such uh, that kind of leadership uh, Virginia to continue that kind of leadership. So maybe we will be the second or uh, or a close behind California in making um, making water a human right. Um, hey, our governor is a doctor. This should be easy. Uh, that 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 could be helpful. That could be helpful. So how can we? We have another question. How can we have? Re uh, this question comes from Patrick Ingram. He asks, how can we have residents understand the importance of voting for candidates? who understand the need for policies and ideologies that support access to clean, affordable, and accessible water. So, you know, what are the ways that we need to talk about this issue um, so that candidates and legislators understand um, that, that we're concerned about it as citizens? I felt like this question was for me. And so I wanted to try and see if someone was gonna jump in first. <laughs> um, I, I first wanna start with a really quick Jess story about why this is so critical. I had a woman recently message me on Facebook and she basically asked the question around how she could get, I wasn't her representative and she said, I have a really good idea for legislation and my representative is such and such, how can I get them to take into consideration this idea? And I said, you know, you should call or email and set up a meeting. And her response was, really, I can do that? And this is literally the emotion that exists in 2020 from citizens. There is still this idea that as representatives, elected leaders, we're on a pedestal somehow. When in reality, as citizens, you are the boss. It is my job, it is our job as elected leaders to represent you. But so many people still do not have a concept of this relationship. And so this idea of empowerment, it's so critical that you don't really learn um, as citizens how that relationship is supposed to work until you are forced to engage with the system and that's how you learn it. You know, I think two things here. I can remember my own parents and being in the situation that you're really just trying to make it from day to day, that you're not necessarily thinking about your elected officials and the role that they have in their life, in your life. They don't automatically make, you don't automatically make a direct correlation there. But once you do realize that interaction can either make you believe that your state or your elected representative is there for you or not. And you will either continue to engage with the system or you won't, which is why it's so important like for somebody like me to make your very first interaction or every interaction that you have meaningful, purposeful and responsive. So how do we get people to do that? I think we have to number one, 
or at least from what I attempt to do, is go to where people are, provide them the information. Don't expect them to come and sort of seek me out and look for help. I want you to know that I'm going to come to where you are and offer this help. Uh, and then I think for people who aren't in elected office, education, 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 informing them about their rights, informing them about um, the obligation as an elected official that I have to you as a voter, uh, the more we can inform, the more we can make people aware, perhaps that might change the way they engage with the system. And so that's just my take. So let me put a um, do a shameless plug for Virginia Interfaith Center. Uh, every year during General Assembly, we have what we uh, uh, call the Day for All People, where we bring um, citizens from all over the state of Virginia to come and have uh, meetings with their legislators to talk about issues and concerns that uh, we uh, want to support and that we know that are important to um, you know, the health and the, um, the quality of life for all of Virginians. So I encourage uh, you, uh, our listeners to and viewers, to think about uh, participating this year um, for our, our, um, our Day for All People. Um, it's a great time of uh, communicating and learning about how legislation, how they say the sausage is made, I guess. <laughs> so you can, uh, you can, um, also join and, uh, and join, uh, go to Virginia's, uh, Interfaith Center's, um, website and sign up for our newsletter and you'll learn about the dates, uh, for this coming year. We don't know, uh, how the assembly will, uh, operate this year because, uh, we don't know what the situation with COVID-19 will be, but, uh, we do know that we will be, uh, meeting with and having conversations with our legislators. And uh, it's a great opportunity to learn how all of this, uh, how, how the sausage is made, right? Um, Jamson, did you have something else you wanted to share uh, on that same question? No, I think we've already kind of come full circle in a way. It's like, this is about developing a relationship with an organization that's already working on this issue. Sign up to be a part of the lobbying efforts of the Interface Center. Sign up to be part of our efforts at Virginia Poverty Law Center and make time when you can. Um, and at the end of the day, like the delegate said, it just comes down to engaging. You have to take place in the political process to and develop those relationships to see how it's actually done. So it's a little bit demystifying for folks and a little intimidating at first. But once you realize how accessible some of these folks are, you'll think like, why did I ever make, build this up to be something that it wasn't in my head? Jamson, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the Virginia Poverty Law Center's work on um, on this issue more broadly and or specifically to um, the issue in Petersburg? Yeah, so um, we need your help right now. We need volunteers to help us keep this issue in the public spotlight, whether it be through writing letters to the editor, reaching out to elected officials, or any number of things that we could be doing. So we're trying to put together an action team right now. In order to sign up for that action team, go to vplc.org slash water and sign up and you'll hear from me personally and we'll talk about how you can get involved in a way that's most appropriate for your skills and time and comfort level. And I just want to also add, I know you didn't um, direct that question towards me, but I think in my conversation uh, with other state leaders and trying to push for relief, push for policy recommendations, it was perceived that oh, this is just a local issue in Petersburg. Oh, this is just a Petersburg issue. And so I think 
it's important, number one, that the action team really show how there are instances of limited access to water. Uh, you know, there are instances where people can't afford their current water utility in places all throughout Virginia. So don't feel like this is just a Petersburg issue. I mean, not long ago, there was a headline of a thousand people facing a possible shutoff in Lynchburg. And, you know, I sent that article to state leaders to say, hey, look, if this is this what you needed to sort of believe this is not just a Petersburg issue. And I think the reason why I'm interested in continuing to talk about this is because as we come out of this pandemic, if there is such a thing, people are still unemployed right now. People are still facing economic hardship. And you're only going to see more of that because no matter what happens, there's still limited engagement with our day-to-day -day operations and things we used to frequent. Uh, and so ultimately you're gonna see a lot more people and we can't just ignore this issue. Thank you, that's true. And um, it would be helpful if we could kind of dig in a little bit to how the situation uh, in Petersburg actually started, right? How did we get to this situation where people are in the middle of a pandemic experiencing uh, no access to water uh, because, they, because either their water has been shut off or um, before, um, because of payment of bills or, or what is the way that people get into trouble um, in Petersburg specifically, but, but in anywhere? How did we get into trouble um, with and, and lose access to water? Dan? Um, well, Delia, do you want to take that one on first? Because I know these are a lot of your constituents in your city. So I, I want to give the floor to you. Sure. Um, so I think a few things should be stated. Number one, not having a background in municipal government, I'm not going to judge those individuals in leadership positions. But some things are very clear. There have been a lot of administrative issues with the utility system in Petersburg prior to the pandemic, whether that be from an infrastructure standpoint or whether that be from a billing standpoint. Uh, even prior, immediately prior to the pandemic, there were individuals we were connecting with their local representatives because of questions about the amounts on their bills. Uh, I think the pandemic compounded that issue and you had individuals, I should take a step back and say, who by the time there was a moratorium in place because of the pandemic, they were already cut off. They were cut off back in July or in the fall or early winter. So you had individuals thinking that there was no course of action and that this was just how they had to live. So what we saw specifically here is a situation that was ongoing that turned into a crisis. Well, quite frankly, that's not fair because without ha not having water is a crisis in itself, but uh, the pandemic sort of exacerbated that issue ultimately. Um, and, and there's a few things that I think raise question in my mind about the stability of the administrative system. Uh, when I was first introduced to this issue, sort of the uncertainty around whether or not there were people who didn't have water, trying to figure out who those people were, trying to determine if a property that was receiving water actually had people in it. I mean, just all types of things that um, 
while I am not the expert, raise questions in my mind about why that information is not easily tracked or available and whether this is the norm in all places, uh, I think adds to how this problem became what it is uh, in our city. I would also just reiterate something I stated earlier, which is I think true of many urban communities from what I've read, uh, especially if you look at the Detroit issue, Baltimore issues, and even right now, issues that are being experienced by people in Philly. You have these old American cities that had a predominant industry that was present. And when that industry leaves, you are left with a gaping economic hole. And sometimes those areas do not ever recover. Uh, I think that is very true here in our locality. I think the aging infrastructure in many older cities uh, from a water utility standpoint is also an issue because that leads to how you approach water rates. Uh, so I think there are a number of categories on how we arrived here with this issue, but then also generally speaking, urban communities. But then I also have to just reiterate and put a fine point on the policies. You know, this is why it's so critical to have the expertise of how to handle these issues that are unique to poor communities, which is perhaps the approach was let's not shut off anyone until we can get the water utility administrative sides of things under control. But then what's the trade off in doing so? You then end up with people who have water bills that are so high that they can never afford to pay because they were already they're already in a state of hardship anyway. So what's the right policy? What's the right balance there? And asking that question in this locality, but then in also other localities that are mirroring some of these challenges are equally critical. And so, you know, nobody's saying that this work is easy, but I think what we saw happen here, and and dare I say, due to some negligence, uh, some lack of expertise. Um, but then also, once you realize that these things were problems, uh, not the sense of urgency in which I feel like some of these things needed to be addressed, and dare I say, even still now. Yeah, I think you captured the problem in a, in a nutshell there, Delegate. Not only at the local level do we have mismanagement and the lack of political will to solve the problem, but also at the macro level, you have deindustrialization in these larger economic trends that are affecting uh, how a lot of cities are doing economically now, how they're impacted, and the resources they have to address some of those problems. Um, and I mean, just to kind of capture what some of these problems are in, in Petersburg, we've had issues even getting a count of who didn't have water. The city didn't even know who didn't have water at the beginning of this pandemic until a city councilwoman submitted a request to the city manager. And what the city manager did was get Petersburg police to go door to door to every house on their records that had a shutoff notice, knock on the door and ask, hey, do you have running water? Yes or no. Right. And at first they said that there were 47 houses that currently did not have water. And then later down the line, three weeks later, they backtracked and said, oh, wait a minute, it's only 17. And there's been no clarification on who has water, who doesn't have water. Even um, the city's keeping that information from city council members. I want to do something from it. So before we can even address the problem, we need to have an idea of the magnitude of the problem. And I think that that needs to be addressed first and foremost. I think this is really, um, uh, you know, not to pick on Petersburg um, at all, uh, because I think that uh, the delegate pointed out that this is a problem across the United States. 
um, particularly because we do have um, aging infrastructure, particularly in these larger cities, older cities, and it's a conundrum how to fix this problem. And um, you know where uh, where we see what happened in Flint, where the budget became an issue, and a very very bad decision was made, and now. Um, you know, the Flint citizens are experiencing the ramifications and the consequences of just a, a very terrible decision. And so I think that um, the benefit and the positive that maybe we can um, take from this is that people can learn from the from the mistakes that have been made uh, and try to craft policy and uh, and a narrative that can change um, the the approaches that cities and municipalities take towards addressing their problem um, of access and affordability. Um, you know, recognizing that um, to, to do that kind of infrastructure work is incredibly expensive and would be an incredible, um, you know, hole in a budget, right? So maybe there are some things that the state could do to help with either maybe low cost or grants or, or, or loans that are uh, very low in, um, in, um, in with their uh, percentage of interest to pay back. Um, what are some other issues and what are some other ideas that can help resolve this issue for, the, for aging uh, cities with aging infrastructure and with um, you know, budget shortfalls uh, related to um, you know, services that they need to provide? And uh, I'll throw that question to Delegate Ayers first. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think a number of things, I think you asked a really broad question. And so in my mind, I'm trying to think through um, the best angle to take. So number one, I think it's important to note that these problems are intrinsically linked to a number of different things. I think that as a state, we will not be able to simply isolate the issue we are seeing right now with water hardship without addressing how do we, you know, ensure that people have proper education, which, you know, our school system by preparing people to have access to jobs and to, you know, high paying careers. How do we ensure that our communities have access to um, the ability to attract companies and organizations to provide for jobs? How do we ensure we don't have food deserts so people don't have difficulty having access to food? And I mean, I think in my mind, all of these things are intrinsically linked together. Um, but from a very specific aspect of this water issue, uh, I know that for me, during as soon as the special session, we will be looking at legislation to address the immediate need of relief from the format of affording your water. And so uh, I'll be introducing, along with another Senate co-patron, this policy uh, referred to as an emergency moratorium debt repayment program. And ultimately, the way this legislation will be structured is it will allow um, a account holder who has sort of uh, gotten behind on their uh, utility to have a moratorium put in place and not have them disconnected and instead allow them to have a payment plan established for maximum 24 months. Uh, and the legislation will put in place certain parameters so that as to not harm the entity that is providing this payment plan, but ultimately to just give people a chance to get caught up. 
so that legislation sort of will be revealed uh, next week prior to us going into special session on the 18th. Uh, but in my mind, that's sort of one of the first steps that the state can take to offer relief specific to just water the water affordability issue um, from a utility standpoint. Yeah, and a lot of these issues are intersectional and the way we approach it here at the Virginia Poverty Law Center is we need to eliminate the barriers that keep people in poverty because a lot of times people in poverty have these challenges that keep sucking them back in. And one thing you don't want to do is take away someone's water when they're trying to do that. So you need to make sure that you have these basic needs met so that we can work on addressing these like broader issues and uh, create a world where everyone is living in dignity and has the uh, respect and rights they deserve. And I think that's a, um, a perfect place for us to wrap up our conversation that uh, what we're hoping to do with the policies and hoping to see with our policies and with our laws is that we can create a quality of life where everyone uh, across the state can feel that they're living with um, some level of dignity, that they're able to access um, the basic needs uh, of, of water, affordable water, clean water, um, and that this is a critical issue for um, for citizens of Virginia, but in fact, it really is a critical issue across the United States and across our world. And the more that we dig into this issue, we um, realize just how important, um, you know, changing that narrative and having a kind of a, a ground uh, a grounding uh, understanding that water is a human right and that we all should have access to affordable, clean water um, in the middle of a pandemic or in the middle of the most perfect, um, you know, idyllic situation that we could possibly have. That water should be accessible and affordable at all times. And I'm so very grateful to Delegate Aird for uh, championing this issue. Uh, and for Jamshid, also for your work championing this issue, we look forward to seeing um, the good outcomes that you all are working towards for our citizens in the Petersburg area, but also all around the state. So uh, we are uh, here to be supportive and to uh, amplify um, this great work. And so we're, we know that um, this General Assembly, this special session, uh, we're looking to see some good things come out. Uh, of it because um, you're doing this hard work on uh, making human right, uh, water a human right. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, and we thank you um, to our viewers and the good questions that they've posed. And I will give um, you a few moments to make your last statements and then we will sign off. Thank you again so much on multiple fronts. I want to thank the Virginia Poverty Law Center, the Virginia Interfaith Center, uh, the coalition of leaders and activists that helped residents in their greatest time of need in the communities that I represent. I also want to just end on the note of empowerment. Uh, this conversation, I hope, will empower individuals to recognize that water is their human right, and that they should not feel shame uh, when they do not have access, when they cannot afford, uh, and to reach out to get assistance. Um, and on another level of empowerment, uh, not telling you who to support, 
But the first step in empowering yourself is putting leaders in place that support the ideals and policies that you believe in. Uh, there will be an opportunity to do so in November. Uh, I would not be an elected leader if I did not remind you to go out and vote, uh, whether that be by mail or whether that be in person. Uh, I often say that, you know, if you want these things that matter to you to actually show up as actually actual policy, that starts with who you support on, on these ballots. And so thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for bringing and amplifying this issue. Uh, I know that I am committed to it. You will continue to hear me talk about this and continue to work on this. But this relationship between elected leaders and citizens uh, is more than transactional. Uh, so you have to do your part, which is going out to vote, and I'll do my part, which is advocating and standing for your issues. Thank you. And in order to let the delegate know what issues are important to you, you need to be organized and working with other like-minded folks. If you want to take action on the water issue, go to vplc.org slash water, vplc.org slash water to sign up to be a member of our water action team. I would also like to extend my gratitude to Reverend Dr. Harris for moderating this panel. It's been a pleasure to be on here with you. It's been a pleasure to be on here with you, Delegate, and um, just knowing all the hard work you do is an inspiration to me personally and to all of us at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. Yes, and let me remind you all to go to virginiainterfaithcenter.org um, and sign up for the newsletter as well as um, participating in our uh, weekly uh, live shows. Um, they're usually on Thursdays at 11 o'clock. Um, also, Virginia Interfaith Power and Light, we do uh, environmental justice work and we're doing a lot, uh, a lot of great work around this issue of water. Um, and so we uh, hope to continue to work with Delegate Aird and with JAM to make sure that uh, Virginians have uh, access to affordable water at all times. And um, we just are, again, thank you so much for listening today and thank you so much to our guest. Uh, we sign off now and say goodbye and have a wonderful day. Thanks everyone, have a good weekend. <laughs>